town of Vivarese Lignon Plateau. I hope I said that right. It's in French. France. French can't spell anything right. Um, South Central France. It's a different place. It's set apart. When we typically think about the countryside of France, at least for me, I think about the wonderful, beautiful um, chateaus, bright and wonderful. But as you go up onto the plateau, things begin to change. You start seeing the house changes to forbidding gray houses of basalt and granite. Tiny windows that keep the ever-present cold out. In the winter, the temperatures regularly get to the mid-negative 20s, often completely snowed in and cut off from the rest of the world in the winter. And it's not uncommon to have snow during the summer either. Combined with this harsh winter, the ground is tough and it is rocky. It is a harsh and difficult place to live, particularly in the 1940s when many homes, most homes, didn't even have electricity. The people that live there are a proud, hardy, independent people. They work hard to make it work because they have to. To the people of the plateau, defiantly protecting the persecuted is a part of their blood and of their culture. 400 years before World War II, the Protestant Huguenots fled, and they fled to the plateau, and they found safety there from the systematic religious persecution by Louis XIV in the 1680s. When World War II began, the towns on the plateau continued this tradition and they carried on and they stood up to the overwhelming force of the Nazi occupiers. They actively provided safety for Jews and others trying to escape torture and death. And at the end of the war, it is estimated that the towns on the plateau saved the lives of nearly 3,000 people. It was also a stronghold for the French freedom fighters, the Marquis. And they were, violent, uh, they were fighting valiantly, but losing many hundreds of men against an overwhelming force. Their ammo and their provisions were dwindling, outnumbered and starving, all alone, fighting against a far superior force. They had seen the smoke of the ruins of neighboring towns that were burnt solely in spite of the region's um, resistance. With just a week before the Allied invasion of Normandy, the Nazis had forces rushing to the area. We often think about the, the uh, Normandy being kind of the end of the period, but that la didn't last. Um, it took a while for them to get across. And so all of a sudden they saw crowds of many hundreds of Nazis coming over, thousands trying to get to Normandy to protect. And this plateau was a good target of convenience on their way. The Allied forces were in France, but their progress were very, was very slow. They simply would not reach this plateau in time before they fall. And then a visitor, a woman by the name of Virginia Hall. Her story is fascinating. Uh, we can go into that later, though. An American woman with a fake leg came into town. 
to visit. And she talked to the leader of the French, French resistance. And she offered the help of the Allied forces, claiming to be a secret agent. And she was immediately turned away. 39-year-old Pierre Fayol believed heartily that war is a man's job. This was a different time. Women were rarely thought outside the home as being very useful. And war particularly was not a place for a woman, let alone clandestine operations. And here was a woman, a crippled woman, offering the help of the Allied forces. How on earth could the Allied forces use such a small and insignificant figure, he thought. He was highly skeptical of this woman. But in the end, he didn't have much choice. He took a chance on her and said he would go for it. Yeah, whatever help she could offer. A decision that ended up leading to 22 nights straight of Allied bombers dropping reinforcements onto the plateau. Resupply drops of weapons, badly needed food, badly needed medicine, and even some chocolate. This decision to trust this unlikely source saved the town many thousands of their own lives as well as the lives of the people who they sheltered. I mean, I can understand the hesitance to uh, trust Virginia. I mean, these were different times. And, and, and a crippled woman, crippled woman carrying the power of the allies behind her? It's unthinkable. But that's exactly what happened. Power, salvation, disguised as weakness. It's madness. And that's exactly what God did to a much larger degree the day that Jesus was born. Power in weakness. I think we've come too accustomed to the idea of God as a baby. Every year Christmas time rolls around and it's just kind of part of what we think about. But God, of, God as a human, let alone as a baby, it's madness. I think we tend to think about the images of the nativity like this. We think about the songs that are written about Jesus' birth, things that are said. Think about the adjectives here. Holy, silent, tender, mild, peace, sleep. When I think about the births of my children, none of those words come to my mind. <laughs> I'm thinking about, I just talked to John out in the lobby. I'm like, are you getting sleep? And he's like, oh, you know, I a very very downplayed answer my answer was always no <laughs> we're not and when i think about the birth of my children it looked a lot more like this <laughs> it's not i'm sorry like maybe it's just because i'm not a medical person but people will come back and be like you know it's such a beautiful experience beauty does not come to my mind when i think about those things um it, it was horrific it was awful i mean i think about like, for Michelle was in labor for over 40 hours, lots and lots of intense pain. As far as I'm concerned, my wife and, and, and the other women in this congregation that have given birth are, are superheroes. Because I was sitting there thinking I have never been through anything like this, and I would give anything to take this pain away, but I couldn't. 
This is just what she had to go through, and she did it like a champ. It, I, childbirth is amazing, but not in the ways that typically we talk about. Uh, when, we were, when we were with Jaden, uh, Jaden came a little bit quicker than we thought he would. It's a long story. I won't go too far into it, but it was about a 45-minute drive to the hospital, and uh, I was about 30 minutes away from home, and Michelle called me and said, come home right now! And so I'm driving like crazy. We're driving down the hill. Michelle's water broke in the car, and she's screaming, and I'm thinking, this baby never better not come out right here. And we hit every light on the way. And when we get there, when we get there, I jump out of the car, and like, you know, Michelle's leaning back, and she can't barely move, and, and I see a wheelchair, and I run over and grab the wheelchair, and out comes this poor um, young, he was probably in his late teens, I don't know, maybe early 20s, attendant, you know, like just working the desk, and he comes out, I'm sorry, sir, you can't grab that, that wheelchair as I'm putting Michelle in, and if you've ever been around a woman that is, is in labor, it's not a good idea to tell her what to do. And she turns around with this, like, primal roar, like, <laughs> and this poor, poor kid almost peed himself, I think. Like, he's like, I'm so sorry! He, like, opens the door, rushes her in, like, um, they put us in the room all the way in the back, and even still, when the doctor showed up, he's like, I could hear you screaming from the lobby. Uh, birth is messy. It's, it's like, again, for a not-medical person, Orion's birthing room looked like a murder scene when we were done. Uh, it, pain, exhaustion. And yet, we have in the Bible repeated over and over, born of a woman. Born of a woman. The images, like, what are the images that the Bible wants us to think of when we think of that? He was born into pain. He was born into suffering. And maybe, maybe that's a little bit more what the Bible stories that are saying born of a woman are trying to get us at. They're trying not so much to see joy. And, and, and I mean, yes, this is joyous and all these things for us. But maybe, maybe it's wanting us to see that God, the whole point was God was willing to come into the messy existence that we live in. So then you've got this baby, you've got this, this birthing experience that is just, man. And then all of a sudden you bring them home, right? And you've got this, especially for your first one, you've got this little six-ish pound human in your house. Their bones are the size of toothpicks. They've got a giant hole in their head for some reason. Uh, that's terrifying, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, I can poke your brain. That doesn't seem right. Um, I remember thinking, like, with Orion, I, I was like, every little thing, I'm like, I am going to kill this child. How, how can I possibly keep this little thing alive? I used to specifically take trips out to Walmart. I'm not joking about this. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but I'm not joking, it happened. Um, I used to take trips out to Walmart just so I could walk around and be like, she can, t she can keep children alive, I can too. She can keep children alive, I can too. And I would repeat that to myself over and over and over again. It's terrifying. This little thing is completely dependent on you. Completely. There's, it, it cannot survive without your full 
attention. They scream for no good reason. They don't understand the concept of sleep. No one gets sleep. Not even their poop makes sense. The only real thing that you have in common with this little thing is this constant state of confusion, exhaustion, and frustration. And I wonder where we would go if our outlooks on the nativity looked a little bit more like a ragged Mary and a ragged Joseph and a screaming baby Jesus. And we go, this is the start of our salvation. A baby is the most vulnerable thing on the planet, completely dependent. How could God be in that position? Have you thought about that? How could God possibly put himself in a position where he is completely dependent on somebody else? They even had to flee Egypt because of a murderous, power-hungry ruler. And as I was processing Olet a little bit this week, my answer came out that he wasn't. Even though Jesus, as a baby, so helpless, he wasn't vulnerable. He had the power of heaven behind him. Yes, Jesus was in hostile enemy territory, but he had the power of heaven behind him. And I don't think that the power of heaven that he had behind him is something that we also don't have. It's easy for us to look at our lives and only see the physical circumstances. It's easy to look at baby Jesus and only see physical circumstances. He was helpless. He was completely dependent on his mother. He was in an environment that wanted to kill him. Those odds don't look good. We don't have enough money. Our circumstances are all wrong. The world is against us. Maybe you're not smart enough. Maybe you don't have the right upbringing. Maybe you don't have the right education. We look at all the external circumstances. And throughout Bible, throughout history, God has always came and said, your external circumstances don't matter. They don't. And I think that the form of our God as a baby is a very good example of the fact that God does not believe in external circumstances. He doesn't care. What we see is not an issue to him. What, what if we were to see what God sees? What if we were able to see beyond those circumstances, those external things, and see what God sees? I don't think we would be worried as much as we are. It's easy to be worried, isn't it? To be thinking about all those things, to be thinking about who's on the phone. <laughs> it's easy to worry. We worry. That's kind of how we're wired. We think about all the things that could go wrong. We think ahead. To trust is hard. Faith is not easy. To believe that God is in control when everything we see says that he isn't. When to believe in God when everything is falling apart. How are we to deal with this idea of God in control when the world isn't the way it should be? 
when the conversations that I have with people revolve around things that God clearly never meant to happen. Children dying, husbands dying, people around us, people, I've had to bury people, kids that have committed suicide. That's not right. What do you tell a parent that? God's in control. Yes, he's in control, but he hardly wanted that. And that's where the second part of the story comes in that I want to talk to you about. Going back to the story of the French Resistance fighters, one letter written by a school teacher as she was standing out there watching the bombers, and this is, a, this is actually a picture um, that was taken, not on that plateau, but it was taken um, on another resupply drop in France. Um, and it's just, I, I just think it's amazing. You can see all these bombers up there. Uh, written by a school teacher, highlighted something interesting that she saw. She, she talked about how the drops provided something far bigger and far more important than the supplies that they came with. The drops supplied the villagers with a belief and an understanding that they were not alone. She notes that before the supply drops began, they felt just like a ragtag group of rebels, completely isolated, completely alone. They at times doubted their cause, an impossible cause against an unwinnable force. But when the supply, resupply drops came, their perspective changed. They saw the skies fill up with these massive bombers. If you have ever been around engines like this, all going, it, it, you can feel it in your chest. You can hear it from a long ways off. And when they come in masses, I can only imagine that you can just feel it rumbling, thumping in your chest. The most impressive technology that the world had ever seen up until that point. And seeing them must have been an experience. The world's superpower had mobilized for them. For them, just a small insignificant ragtag group of people doing their best and here shows up the world's most powerful force in their favor they were not forgotten more more importantly they came to realize they were not insignificant and it stoked for the first time in them a sense of recognition renewed pride a sense of brotherhood with strangers miles away No longer just a group of rebels destined to die, but a part of a proud, liberating army supported by the world's largest and most powerful allied group the world had ever seen. They found their importance. What mattered as much, maybe more, to those people is to know that they simply weren't alone. They were not isolated. Somebody powerful was in their corner. Sometimes there's no good answer for the things that we deal with. Sometimes the best answer we simply have is that we are living in enemy territory where bad things happen. And sometimes in our pain and in our anger, what we need more then a God that fixes everything is a God that understands. A God that can sit with us in our sorrows and knows 
what our sorrows feel like. A God that breathes the same air that we breathe. When you look back through the history of the Jewish people to the beginning of time, what you see over and over and over again is that God wants to be with his people. He is not one that steps away outside of our context, but he always comes in. He walked through the garden with Adam and Eve. He did not just make them and leave them, but he walked with them. That has always been his desire for us, is to be with us. His presence was visible to the Israelites as they walked through the desert. He told them to go boldly into the promised land because he was with them. Not in some tangential, obscure way of thinking. He was with them in a very tangible way. Over and over, God emphasizes, I am with you. I am with you. And then one day, God shows up as a baby. The ultimate, I am with you statement. The ultimate, I understand you statement. The Bible tells us that Jesus had to be tempted. He had to experience pain and hardship and ultimately death in order to fulfill the things for our salvation. And he was well acquainted with those things. I don't think that we will ever really fully understand how horrific, horrific of a concept it is for God to suffer. And yet he did it. Anyways, for us. Perhaps when we see him in his glory on the throne of heaven, we will see a glimpse of the sacrifice he made for us. Ellen White um, an important founder of our church and someone that we believe spoke, um, God spoke to in very special ways, wrote of the moment God told the angels of salvation. I want to read this to you because I feel like it gives us a better perspective of what God did for us. The plan by which a man's salvation could be secured involved all of heaven in its infinite sacrifice. The angels could not rejoice as Christ opened up before them the plan of redemption, for they saw that man's salvation must cost the, their loved commander unutterable woe. In grief and wonder they listened to his words as he told them how he must descend from heaven's purity and peace, its joy and glory. Note those words are all the words that we use for the nativity. He must descend from heaven's purity, his peace, and its joy and glory and immortal life and come in contact with the degradation of earth to endure sorrow, shame, and death. He was to stand between the sinner and the penalty of sin. Yet few would receive him as the Son of God he would leave his high position as the majesty of heaven, appear upon the earth and humble himself as a man, and by his own experience become acquainted with the sorrows and the temptations by which man would have to endure. 
again, I don't know exactly what the minimum required amount of suffering it was for Jesus to endure for our salvation. But I am sure, knowing his character, that he did far more than the bare minimum for us. Jesus has shown through history that his love for us brings him to do anything to be with us, even in our sorrows. If he must endure sorrow to be with us, then that's what he will do because you are that important to him. Many of the Christian tenets that we talk about are difficult for people to understand, particularly people that have never come in contact with Christianity. You know, we talk about the penalty of sin and the law and, you know, justification and all those other things. They're difficult for people to process, particularly people that don't feel like there's anything wrong with them. But every single person on the face of the planet has had times where they feel alone. Every single person on the face of the planet has times where they feel insignificant. Some, times where they just need somebody next to them that understands. And this, I feel, is the one piece of our Christian experience that doesn't even need explaining. God knows. God understands. And he is there for you. I asked earlier, what should we do when the world falls apart around us? And in those moments, we can see the times when God's job is not to alleviate suffering, but to sit with us, because he has also endured it. To know that God himself literally moved heaven and earth, left paradise, and voluntarily experienced the pain. Sometimes reinforcements come in knowing simply that we are supported. A good leader never asks his people to do or endure something he himself is not willing to do or endure, and that's exactly how God has led us. Jesus' birth, born of a woman, a life beginning like ours in pain and vulnerability, was the start of a long, horrible road for Jesus and a long, glorious road for us. A road he gladly walked for you because of his deep longing to be with you. We will suffer in life. There's no getting around that. But as we celebrate the birth of Christ, may you reflect on the fact that God understands and God is with you. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. When I was sinking down, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. For, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on. I will sing on. And when from death I'm free, I will sing on. And when from death I'm free, I will sing of his love for me. And through eternity, I'll sing on and I'll sing on. And through eternity, we will sing on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.
Thank you.